0: Hello. Um, my, this is uh, Dr. Hemi Gambari, the deputy editor of the Cardiovascular Digital Health Journal. And it is my great honor to have our guest today, Dr. Khaldun Tarakji, who is the author of a very interesting paper published in the April issue of our journal titled Atrial Fibrillation Future Clinic, Novel Platform to Integrate Smart Device Electrocardiograms into Clinical Practice. Khaldun, Welcome to our podcast.
1: Thank you, Hamid. Thanks for the opportunity.
0: Wonderful. Just a little brief background on you, yourself, your work. If you could introduce yourself to our audience and tell us what you have been working on at Cleveland Clinic.
1: Sure. Yeah. So my name is Kaldun Tarakji. I'm a cardiac electrophysiologist at the Cleveland Clinic. Um, And um, uh, just like uh, many of uh, our colleagues, uh, we were in the face of new wave of wearables and direct-to-consumer devices enabling um, not only to record beats per minute or blood pressure, but as you well know, record uh, ECG. And uh, you quickly recognize the potential of these devices. You recognize the opportunities, but also you, you recognize the challenges. And uh, also you quickly recognize that, uh, yeah, we might be in the face of this with a wave of uh, direct-to-consumer devices recording ECG. But the challenges are mutual among our colleagues in multiple cardiovascular specialties or beyond, whether it's blood pressure, whether it's monitoring glucose, Uh, it's the workflow, it's the triage of the data. And with that recognition, we started by doing studies with the main goal of not only understanding these devices, uh, checking their accuracy, but also building some solutions about how to embed them in your clinical practice. And that led off the foundation of the Heart and Vascular Institute Center for Digital Health with the main goal of bridging the gap between wearables and digital technology and clinical practice. And it's been a, f- a fun j- journey, and this is hopefully one of the steps that we, uh, we uh, projects that we worked on, and happy to share this with uh, you today.
0: Thanks, Cal, doing it, You're you a perfect example of how to turn an obstacle into an opportunity, and you've certainly been leading the way with your institution at Cleveland Clinic. Uh, so if you could, um, to our audience, give a brief overview of your paper and major findings that that you were able to glean from conducting
1: this study. Sure. So the, the main goal is uh, to assess a, really a new care model uh, to follow patients after atrial fibrillation ablation. And the, the main goal to remind uh, our audience, this is not to test the device itself or to assess the algorithm used, but really to assess a platform that we, uh, we've been using to enable us to use this and scale it to many patients and not just uh, a select group of patients to follow their ECG recordings using a smartphone. So the way I see it, we call it the AFib Future Clinic. Uh, I do believe the future is here but we need to understand it better, and that's the that's the project. So this was a pilot study, uh, Hamid, uh, to describe, the goal is to describe AFib detection, healthcare utilization, and use of additional ECGs or cardiac monitors, in addition to changes in the anxiety level among patients after what we call successful AFib ablation. So we targeted patients who are presenting three to four months after what we define as early successful AFib ablation. So they had their ablation done. This is their first follow-up visit four months later. We had a blanking period of four weeks. But beyond this, if all their arrhythmia transmissions showed sinus rhythm, that's what we call early successful ablation for the sake of this study in particular. And these were low-risk group of patients. So they either we decided that they're going to be maintained on anticoagulation, or their CHAZ-VAS score is zero. So we tried to target a lower-risk patient's When really we don't need uh, aggressive monitoring, we usually send them home, we tell them to come back in six months, and based on guidelines, sometimes you do intermittent halter uh, every six months to assess their rhythm. That's the self-monitoring group versus uh, the smartphone ECG, and we use the Cardia device, uh, coupled with this cloud-based platform that alerted the physician only when AFib was suspected or detected by the device and the algorithm itself. Um, And we followed these patients up for six months. So what we found that in in this group of a total of 100 patients, 18 of them had AFib recurrence. In the smartphone ECG group coupled by the platform, uh, 11 had recurrent AFib, which accounted for 21.6%, as opposed to only 14.6% in the traditional standard of care control group. And AFib was detected earlier among those who used smartphone ECG, with a median of 68 days versus 91 days. In the standard of care group. Now, these numbers, they're clearly a difference in direction for more detection and earlier detection in the smartphone. They did not reach statistical significance. And I think part of it is the smaller study. As I mentioned, Hamid, this is a pilot study. What was interesting is the healthcare utilization, which is a concern for a lot of us with using these devices. Uh, We did not see increasing increase in the amount of phone calls or ER visits or in person visits with using the smartphone. As a matter of fact, we've seen significant. A decrease in the need for additional traditional monitors, uh, only in 5.9% among those who use the smartphone ECG system with the platform versus 27.1% in those that standard or care who required additional ECGs or ambulatory traditional monitors. And we also looked at the anxiety level, and it did not change the anxiety level among patients who use the smartphone. So again, we concluded that the smartphone ECG coupled with this cloud-based platform that alerted the physician only when AFib is suspected, uh, could be incorporated into the care of uh, AFib patients after ablation without increasing anxiety level and, in fact, with less need for additional traditional monitors.
0: That's fa- that's fantastic, Kaldun. And, uh, you know, when I read your paper, uh, one of the first things that stuck to my mind was what you just mentioned, which was the, the healthcare lo- utilization was much lower and the anxiety levels for, for patients were much lower. And that's, I think, when when we think about these devices and giving it to our patients, we often think the opposite is true. What are your thoughts about why that misconception exists within the community? And were you surprised to to find this or was this something you expected to see?
1: You know, for, for somebody who has been using these devices for quite some time, I am personally not surprised. But you've got to show this in an objective way and, and share with our community at large. Uh, these are legitimate concerns, Hamid, and I, I think part of it is our interaction with technology has been mainly focused around electronic medical records. And uh, as a clinician and, and, and healthcare community, we have not seen the technology making our life easier uh, all the time. As, as a matter of fact, quite the opposite. There is concern that uh, patients might overuse these devices, and and the, some concerns are legitimate. Like with the concept of receiving random emails with flood of data coming from patients, this is not sustainable. So we, instead of turning your back, we took an active role. So the first step we did, we actually designed uh, this platform that made it possible for the recordings to be uploaded to the cloud. So you're not jamming your emails with random emails with PDF attachments. So I think that was an important step. Then we looked at the patient's behavior, trying to address these concerns. Um, And let me share with you some that maybe they're not the primary endpoint, but I think they're equally important for studies of this nature. First of all, Hamid, it's important to mention that we excluded patients who were already using a smartphone or smart device or smartwatch ECG. Uh, so we we try not to be biased because the usual comment that you get, well, these are folks that are very comfortable using these devices and they know how to use it. So no, we um, enrolled patients who were naive to these devices. That's one. The average age is typical average age of uh, AFib patients was 64. This is not your college student who's, who's comfortable using apps and wearables, uh, not at all. And a common concern is that they're going to, overuse this system, we actually told them to record at least once a week or anytime they have symptoms. And when you look at the data, the average transmission rate using the smartphone was twice a week. Not redundant, not overwhelming, certainly manageable. So when I sit on a podium trying to go with the pros and cons, it used to be a personal opinion. And I hope now I have some data to show it that trust your patients. They, They know how to use it. And with the proper education, they will use it reasonably, but you do need the software solution to make it feasible to follow up uh, and scale it to all your patients and not just the select few.
0: Absolutely. I think not only you have the evidence, Nana, we can use the evidence that you generated to talk to our patients as well. Um, Caldo and the- one of the major challenges uh, with implementing these, this kind of programs is the cloud infrastructure architecture and the software requirements. Um, can you shed a little bit of light about how you went about designing that infrastructure and some tips uh, and uh, that you've learned through trying to implement a, a big program like this for our audience?
1: Sure, and I'll, I'll be happy to. I mean, this was a collaboration, certainly not a personal effort. Uh, but, but let me start by by saying that um, tech companies, startups, or large companies, they are extremely innovative. Uh, our strength as clinicians is clinical expertise, uh, daily practice, and recognizing areas for improvement. Uh, while you see billions of dollars being invested in, in the device itself and the algorithm, you don't see the same effort in providing software solution or workflow to make it feasible to, for you and me to adopt in clinical practice. So, uh, but, but since we do this every day, with the, the combination of providing feedback, uh, this was enabled us to, with the help of the company itself, to build this cloud-based platform guided by what, what do we need? What do we need for us as clinicians to review? Now, it did not come from vacuum. It came after many studies when we got comfortable with their algorithm, um, the, the percentage of the false negative and false positive. And for the most part, we recognized that these devices are pretty good in identifying the normal, but when it's abnormal or possible AFib, you still need that physician overview before you take any action or before you trigger intervention. And that's the concept of not only having the platform and not only uploading the, the recordings to the cloud, but also the system of programming it so in a way that you're not flooding your basket every day with tons of normal. Let's highlight the abnormal and let's focus on those. And you still have access to all the recordings when the patient picks up the phone and calls you. At least you have the optics to look at all the recordings. And as we move forward in this field to make it more successful. Uh, we need to set the bar high and making sure the algorithms continue to be better to at least take out the noise, take out the normal, flag the abnormal, have that confidence, and to enable us to have an easy-to-use platform to see these recordings quickly, efficiently, and you can scale it to all your patients.
0: Um, One of the other issues that often comes up when uh, thinking about implementing a program like yours is the Financial incentives for not only the hospitals or physicians, but also on the side of the patients, because there's a significant uh, financial cost at, for for some of these devices. How did you How do you think about navigating that, and what What are your thoughts about how to improve that so we can drive adoption of your kind of solutions forward?
1: Well, that's a great question, and. Uh... You know the way I think about it. You, you see that technology is moving at this super fast speed. Patients are actually quick to adopt it because they come to us already with these devices, and we we're trying to get on that track. So we're trying to catch up, but rules and regulations are really falling behind. Reimbursement models and all the points that uh, great points that you are raising, and uh, it is a challenge because the the models that we have for reimbursement for monitors. Um, we're shackled by these monitors, and they have a lot of, uh, um, you know, requests and demands. For example, the 24-7 monitoring uh, is a huge obstacle to adopt these technologies. Um, For anybody who's taking care of the AFib patients, we know that we need to act on these, but it is not always an urgent need. You just need to get the the idea about what's going on, for the most part. Um, so that's why we cannot use any of the existing models. Now there are new waves of new uh, reimbursement models. And to be honest with you, uh, Hamid, we're not using them yet. But at least payers, Medicare and private payers, they are also recognizing the potential of these devices. So there's new series of new uh, 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 billing codes specifically targeting physiologic parameters obtained by the phys- by the patient and for you as a clinician or a nurse practitioner or physician, reviewing these on a monthly basis for a certain amount of time, so uh, there are some new billing codes that are already existent. We are exploring this like any other institutions, and I agree with you. It's going to be a shared effort, uh, and this would not be complete unless we have clarity when it comes to reimbursement models. Uh, paying out-of-pocket by patients for these devices or for the services uh, they actually don't mind it; they welcome it because it's their health. But you cannot. You feel, as a clinician, um, it's it's always an uncomfortable step when you have these discussions, knowing that um, there are some costs with these devices and the services, and we're always hesitant about offering something that's going to add additional cost to the patient.
0: Definitely, those are challenges that we're all facing as as we adopt to this new landscape. Um, one of the other things that keeps on coming up whenever we see papers written around this is the question of disparities of care. Particularly, um, there seems to be, for a variety of reasons, that certain populations are not recruited in the clinical trials that that we see. FDA has taken notice because now there's more and more evidence that these interventions and some of these devices may not perform equally in different racial and ethnic groups. What are your thoughts about um, tackling those disparities uh, through equitable recruitment into clinical trials, uh, having, target, having preset targets, for instance, for having uh, equal or near equal gender and uh, ethnic par- my, uh, minorities participate in these trials? What are the challenges with something like that? And if you could maybe just use your experience to explain Um, the challenges you face and how you navigated them.
1: Yeah, you touched on a lot of great points. Um, I'll try to address uh, many of them. Um, It's different when you talk about studies and clinical trials. Um, uh, These these are probably easier uh, issues to tackle because it's limited numbers. Not everything you have control upon, but at least you can navigate the the way by providing these devices, by uh, providing them to to all patients, Um, but it's still a smartphone is a limiting factor. Now, the rest of the world tells you that um, it's the law of the land. Everybody's carrying the most up-to-date smartphone. Uh, We learned this over and over. We learned this from studies looking at smartphone ECGs, and we learned from studies now, as you know, patients can monitor their uh, implantable device whether it's a pacemaker or defibrillator, using their smartphone. And when we did these other studies, we did a survey of uh, when patients come to us, who actually has a smartphone, and if they do, if it's compatible with the technology that you're offering. And it's not a trivial number that of patients still using flip phones. And you have uh, a lot of patients that actually do have a smartphone, but it's, out, out, uh, it's outdated. And you have uh, the issue of digital literacy. They have a phone that happened to be smart but they've never used the smartphone features because now you're asking the patient to have a google store account apple store account and they've never used these features so there's issue of the digital literacy which is also important we take the fact that everybody's connected with free high-speed internet for granted and it's not the case so uh, look there, there are certain things that we can control certain things that we cannot control and like i said it up until we see all these elements moving at the same speed, whether it's the technology, um, the patients and clinicians, and the society at large. Let me give you an example. In Cleveland, there's a huge initiative now of providing high-speed internet access to uh, uh, to underserved areas within the city itself. I think it's a great initiative to provide high-speed internet at, uh, at a minimal cost, if not no cost at all. Uh, other than that, we're going to be providing these great services, great care, but for the lucky few who can afford it. And the other point that I'd like to make, I mean, we we talk about uh, smartphones and smartwatches as the democracy of healthcare. And in in many aspects, it is indeed. Um, I come from overseas. I have family members who live overseas. They probably cannot afford many of the cutting edge technologies that we have. But they have smartphones, so for 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 these people, it's a it's a welcome thing. But it's still very expensive to a lot of people. It's not an easy investment to invest in a watch coupled with a phone, with a service. These things add up, and uh, they certainly needs to be addressed on a society level, uh, in addition to a clinical work. Now, the back the, the the other side of this is the challenges of conducting these studies. So. Here you are, you divide these patients to control and and smartphone or uh, ECG recorder. And those who are randomized to control, as you know, they can go home and they can buy these devices on their own. So these are the other side of this. When these devices are available, you're not in control. You are not, I'm not, and they can purchase these devices. And these are some of the challenges that you face when you conduct these studies. Um, Luckily, the crossover rate in our study was minimal but it is something that you're gonna expect when you conduct these studies.
0: And through your study, you really, I think, show a great example of how you can offset some of the costs that you mentioned, right? Um, If you can reduce healthcare utilization, that could be a great reason for institutions to adopt this because you offset the cost of the cloud infrastructure and the device through healthcare savings that you, you clearly exhibited in your study.
1: Absolutely. I think that's where it is, um, the way I, I see it. As, as uh, clinicians, and especially those who are interested in the field, uh, this is our responsibility, our responsibility of uh, studying these devices, sorting out the ones that work from the, those that do not, uh, educating our patients and our colleagues, but also to show impact. We're, we're, as you know, we're moving from just simply testing devices to show an impact and the impact could be clinical impact it could be economical impact otherwise it will be just more data and more data will create more noise i do believe that as a field we're moving from just uh, the cool device that let me see if it works to let me show you what the impact that it might have and i think that's where the future will be heading
0: fantastic uh Caldoon. What what is uh, next for Calvin Tarakchi and as you navigate this field, what are you thinking of doing next? What are what are some interesting areas? that your questions you're thinking about? Where do you think that? Where do you think we're heading going forward here?
1: I, you know, look, it, it is exciting. I mean, these tools that we've never had before, and um, and all these smart devices. Uh, I think the the future is bright. And probably we're uh, at the advantage in our specialty, in electrophysiologists, because we are ahead of other specialties. When you talk to your colleagues who are valve specialists or uh, or heart failure, they they have their own tools, they have their own technology, but it's moving at a lower uh, speed. So for us, let's take let's take advantage of uh, these technologies, and let's take the care of patients a step further. Where do I see the future? I think it's about time to, like I mentioned, to look beyond just the device itself, but look at the impact that we have. And where do I see the potential? I, I see the potential of of, uh, of providing better care. Uh, look at our field with AFib ablation when we used to report the success rate after AFib ablation. We were limited with the tools. We were limited with the ability to monitor. That's no longer the case. We can challenge our guidelines as well. Uh, One of the things that we mentioned and we talk about in the paper about our definition of success of AFib ablation, Uh, we talk about the concept of AFib burden, for example. And when you have that visual uh, impact of recordings of before and after, uh, you can see, and we mentioned this in the article, in in a gentleman who was having almost daily episodes, and then uh, uh, they went for about six months without any AFib, until they got one day with one episode of AFib for 30 seconds. This is a failure of your ablation based on the guidelines. Here you have a 30-second recording of clear AFib. No question about it. But as far as the impact on the quality of life, it is remarkable. Where do I see the future? I see the future of ideas about how to implement this. We did other studies targeting patients coming for elective cardioversion. These are patients that we saw in clinic, Hamid, and we decided they need a cardioversion turned out that 8% actually are back in normal rhythm. They they did not need to take a day off from work or occupy a spot in the lab or get an IV line. Opportunity to save costs or avoid a procedure that is not even needed if you had the optics to see this. We're looking at using the pill in the pocket um, for anticoagulation, for DOAC. Do you need to be on blood thinners all the time when now you have these tools to uh, take it as needed, for example? Not yet known, but that's the area to be studied. We have the tools to study this. and I I know for our colleagues in Northwestern, Rod Passman is doing this as well, and he's leading the effort. This would not be possible without having these tools. Um, So uh, great opportunities clinically, even greater opportunities from research standpoint as far as understanding AFib and providing better care for our patients.
0: Definitely, Galvin, you're leading the way in, in this field. And, and we're so excited to see what comes out of your lab, reading all the articles that you'll be writing on this topic and continuing to be a pioneer in this field going forward. Thank you so thank much. You, for...
1: Thank you for your leadership and thank you for the Cardiovascular Digital uh, Health Journal. Uh, we really needed a home for all the, this work. And uh, let me just share a couple uh, thoughts that it used to be difficult to find a home for all the work, um, because some of the work is really not just about electrophysiology or the clinical aspect, uh, but it's more about the technology itself. And with the way that the field is heading, we needed a, a target journal that we can all share this idea. This will not be a personal effort or one institution effort. It's a collective effort. Uh, There's no reason for us to repeat the same mistakes, and we can all learn from each other and hopefully help ourselves, our colleagues, and most importantly, our patients. So I thank you for your leadership and for the journal for this opportunity. Wonderful. Thank
0: you, Calvin. look forward to seeing how this field develops together. Thank you, Habib. My pleasure.